Hi everyone, it's Tony Nash with Plugged and Unplanned and I'm excited today because I'm interviewing an author as I normally do. I've got Dermot Crowley or it could be Crowley depending on which side of, uh, of Ireland you come from with his new book, Urgent Strategies to Control Urgency, Reduce Stress and Increase Productivity and no better time to be releasing a book with that title, with that content. Welcome to the show, Dermot. Thank you so much, Tony. It's fantastic to be here. So, I mean, gosh almighty, you, you started writing this book obviously before COVID started, and little did you know, I mean, you're talking about productivity, you're talking about reducing stress um, and and just repurposing yourself. Oh, you, you're, you're like Nostradamus. <laughs> I wish I could say that. Yeah, look, it, it was um, it was good timing in some ways. It is it's a weird time to publish a book. Um, obviously, everything has changed, but uh, I was very clear that it was um, this was a good time to actually publish it because I, I see so many clients now who are really struggling with their productivity, working in um, in isolation and and working from home. And uh, I think that urgency has just increased for a lot of people now, and they're looking for strategies to be able to deal with it. So it's good timing. Is it is it also for some of us though that completely the opposite? They're actually finding themselves more productive when they're working from home. Look, I, I reckon there was a period when COVID first hit when we all went kind of quiet and we um, we were maybe feeling like we we didn't have a lot to do because a lot of organizations were in flux and, and they kind of froze in a way. But I reckon that passed pretty quickly for most corporate clients, certainly. And now what I'm seeing is a, a huge spike in email traffic. So they're getting more and more emails because they don't have the it's not the formal meetings that have changed. Uh, you know, they're in Zoom meetings all day long. But what they're missing is the informal conversations that they used to have with people in the hallways and, and before a meeting or around the coffee machine. And that's turned into emails. So people are now in Zoom meetings from 8 o'clock in the morning. And then they've got two or 300 emails to deal with at the end of the day. So I, I reckon it's, it's really causing a lot of pressure. And, of right. course, I reckon that a lot of that, um, you know, seems urgent, but it's not actually. Um, but they're, they're caught up in this frenzy of urgency and it's hard. So, so then what is some of the things then that you're able to, without giving too much away, and for those that listen to my show, they know that I, you know, I'm the, I'm the owner or part owner of uh, Booktopia and the CEO. The last thing I want to do is give away the, you know, the, the juicy stuff. You have to go out and buy this book, everyone. I mean, this it's a it's not too big. It won't take you long. So therefore, you're not going to create any more stress by um, you know having this huge tome of a book in your hand to think oh, I've got to read this to work out how to be more productive. Very easy to read. Very easy to hold in your hand. Great little bite-sized uh, chunks of information that you've put in there, Dermot. But you know when you when you kind of sit down with a, with a company or a, or a team or a person directly, what are some of the first kind of provoke, provoking, provocative questions that you're going to ask someone to really kind of you know, pry them out of their thinking or out of their mindset? Yeah. 
So look, I reckon the first thing is for people to understand what actually causes urgency, because we all face it every day. We all have urgent things that we need to deal with. And, and for a lot of people, it's just become the norm. And like, I, don't, I, I want to be sure that I don't make urgency out to be the bad guy. Urgency is necessary and it's a reality and we're not going to ever lose it, I don't think. But... I reckon that there is uh, a certain type of urgency that is avoidable. And when we have too much of it, um, when it becomes not only acute, but also chronic. So when everything is urgent in a person's role, then it causes huge amounts of stress and it causes a lot of rework. And it actually distracts us from the important things that we should be doing in our role. So I think there's really bad side effects to the urgency. But I think the first step is to just understand what actually causes urgency. And, and while, while some urgency is, um, is very real and we couldn't have planned for it and we couldn't have anticipated it, there's lots of urgency that is either fake. So somebody uh, makes something out to be urgent when it's not actually urgent or even worse we make it out to be urgent ourselves so we often we often look at things and make them urgent and, and email is a great example of this um, if it, people have email alerts turned on what they're doing is they're making every email urgent or feel urgent even though it's not so um, I think we need to be able to recognize the fake urgency and we also need to be able to recognize the avoidable urgency. So they're the things that either someone else left until the last minute and then put on our plate or even worse, we left it till the last minute and then we have to clean up our own mess. So I reckon that's the, the, the first thing to do is to just raise people's awareness that these are all things that we can control to some degree. And it's not hard to put strategies in place at an individual level or at a team level to counteract the, the negative aspects of it. So if I was to, um, I don't know, appoint you as the global judge of the masters of managing urgency, because um, you're obviously a keen observer and I'm sure you've managed your own. I mean, if you're teaching it and talking about it, you've probably got great systems yourself. But yeah. it's hard sometimes to um, for us to, to connect with you because um, uh, because you've you've spent so many years kind of doing it. But for those that you've that you've observed over the years, who is who are some of the like the you know the the legends of managing their time in this way? What 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 have you seen in their, in them that they do to to maybe naturally with you know it's it's organic for them or maybe they've they've had to put a lot of effort in who are the people out there that you've seen that really do this well look uh, you know there's probably a range of people from you know books that i've read um that might be biographies of ceos where you know in reading the book you get a sense that this is quite natural um for them so um uh, I'm reading a book at the moment, um, uh, the biography of the, the Microsoft um, CEO, um, and um, I've forgotten his name. Um, but you can just tell that even before coming into the role of Microsoft CEO, he had an approach that was uh, that had to be quite responsive to everything that was going on in the business. But at the same time, a certain amount of his brain had to be 
dedicated to looking into the future and, and, and planning and anticipating stuff and driving people towards the vision that he was building. And um, Bill Gates is not a great example of this. You know, Bill Gates takes, uh, I believe, you know, a, a week, a month where he goes away into the wilderness and he, and he just has a, a little house where he, he, he sits and he thinks and he works on big problems. And I think that that's a, a fantastic mindset. Um, I've, I often see this at very senior levels. So when someone gets to the very top of a big organization, they become CEO or they become a very senior divisional director, they often operate in a different way to the people just below them. And, and I reckon that the, the people that really get hammered the most when it comes to urgency or productivity issues are, are often that layer of senior management where they're getting the kind of from uh, above and below and from the sides. But in order to make the, the shift to become a very, very top executive, they, they need to shed their skin and, and learn to operate in a different way where they're not so driven by the day-to-day -day issues of the business. They're, they're more driving the agenda themselves. And that means that they have to protect time to think and to plan and, and to have discussions with people um, that are maybe, you know, on a, a, a longer horizon than many of their people will be operating to. So I guess that's where I, I tend to see it. But unfortunately, most of the work I do in large corporates is, is with those middle managers and staff and, and even senior managers who are just so much under the pump because they're, they're expected to be in meetings all day long. They're expected to deal with 300 emails a day and they're expected to achieve outcomes, which, you know, if you think about it, they don't get paid to do emails. They don't get paid to be in those meetings. They get paid to bring their, their thinking to the role, but they don't have time to do that properly. And it's, it's a real shame. Wow. So, so does that mean... I mean, obviously, people who are um, in more um, shop floor kind of situations where they've got a job to do, um, the the priorities are, are kind of laid out in terms of their workload. In say a Booktopia, this is the number of books you need to pack. Um, yeah. or these are the books that you need to pack, so you pack them. And so, therefore, there's not there's not a lot of um, prioritizing or conflicting kind of uh, agendas and and people coming to maybe there's something you've got to go and clean that area, which means you're not going to be able to do that. So there's time management issues. But it's, it sounds like really the, it's the people who are the meat and the sandwich who are who are then get too, too many people putting claims on them in terms of tasks or, or requests yeah. or time. What, so what about them, though? Is it more about them saying no and knowing how to say no to things um, and having the courage to say no? Is that one of the keys that you've come across that um yeah look I, I think i think you're right i think there's always a level of worker in an organization that will be what i call a, a process worker so whether they're packing books in the in the storeroom or whether they are um processing invoices in accounts um receivables or payable or whether they're in a retail environment so my background was retail when i first started out um, in in work i was working in supermarkets and in wine um, businesses. 
And you kind of serve, someone came in the door and they wanted to buy a bottle of wine and you serve them. That was your priority. And, and sometimes it got really busy and, and there was a lot of urgency at, at really busy times. But there wasn't a lot of prioritization that needed to be done. Uh, I just needed to serve the next person or you need to process that next invoice. But it's the knowledge workers in our organizations that um, they're expected to, to do a, a multitude of, of different things. They have different stakeholders within an organization. They've got their client facing role potentially. And then they, they need to please their manager and their manager is getting pressure from above or from outside. And uh, it becomes complex because it's not for these people, it's not a matter of I've got 15 orders to process today. and I'm going to start at the top of the pile and work my way through as quickly as I can. That's all about efficiency. And I think efficiency, the focus on efficiency was probably in the, the 1940s through to the 1970s. They, they put a lot of focus on how can we make office workers more efficient to get more work done. But then the shift came and, and people like Stephen Covey in the 1970s, 80s uh, started to talk about effectiveness and, and the fact that the modern worker needed to go beyond just doing things quickly. They needed to make sure they were doing the right things. So, um, you know, that, that's complex. And, and to be honest, I find that most people still struggle with that because the truth is our our human instinct is to serve people because we all want to do a good job and we will most likely serve the people that are either most important in our world, that we're potentially most afraid of, like the big boss, um, or that are most insistent. So when you've got someone who's sending you an email that's saying, urgent, I need this today, and they're more senior than you, our instinct is to drop everything and, and just deal with that. And I think a part of the solution, going back to your question, is, um, yeah, we, we do need to learn to say no, or we at least need to learn to negotiate to some degree. But for that to happen, that requires a shift on the individual level. So people need skills and strategies in place to do that. But at the cultural level in an organization, an organization needs to create a culture that will allow that conversation to happen in the first place. And that's often not the case. Mm -hmm. so, so does it come from the top down? Do you feel like, I mean, you work with a lot of organizations. And so if, does, does someone engage you to work in their, in their company uh, because, um, you know, fix up all those people, you know, like they're yeah. completely inefficient. Um, um, I need you to make them more productive so we make more money or that we make more profit or or I get less, you know, they're complaining about these yeah. things. So you need to sort, just sort them out because there's just, too, I'm getting too many complaints that they're overworked. Um, yeah. Does it really, does it come, does it come from the top down in terms of, of I, I'm telling you to do this or does it come from, you know, the leader is leading, the leader is motivated to be productive themselves therefore permeates through the organization. What's your experience of that? Yeah, look, it depends on the size of the organization. So some, some of the most rewarding um, pieces of work that I get involved in are with, a, you know, maybe a medium-sized organization where I am working with the leadership team to begin with and, and helping them with their personal productivity. And then they face certain 
productivity challenges that are um, kind of unique and, and need to be addressed in a certain way. So I'll often work with a leadership team on their personal productivity, but then also have the conversation about what they need to do to lead productivity in their organization and what they need to do to create a more productive culture. So that's that's the ideal scenario, but more often than not, I'm working in very large organizations where uh, you know it might be a bank or a, um, an insurance company where there's there's you know literally 20, 30, 40,000 staff, and I don't have the luxury of working with the very top uh, leadership team uh, all the time. It does happen from from time to time, but often I'm dealing with that middle layer. So one of the decisions I made probably pre pre um, writing urgent when I when I wrote smart teams which is all about your, your um, productive cultures when I wrote that book I realized that I am not a cultural change expert I know my as my, my partner's Italian and they've got a phrase and um, you know your chickens um, I, I know my chickens I know that I'm a, a I'm, I'm an expert in productivity but I have to talk about cultural change so I decided to flag that up front and say, hey, you know, this is just some practical advice, but I'm not the cultural change expert. But one of the things that I do believe is the best way to create cultural change in a large organization is to attack it at the team level and create what I call microcultures. So just like a, a microclimate has its own set of weather conditions because of the topography of the, the, the ground and things like that. A team can have its own microculture, and if a team really works hard to create their own productivity culture, they can then create ripples that influence the teams around them. So Stephen Scott Johnson talked about uh, in one of his books about cultural change, that idea of creating ripples. So that's probably where I attack this more often than not. And sometimes that then turns into a conversation with the very senior leadership team in an organization where they kind of go, you know what, we all need to be doing this. It's not just that team that, that needs to be doing it. But often they need to see some success first before they'll, they'll take the time to bother. And, and so when you're working in an organization, do you find that there's some people who can not be disciples of of productivity but to, you know to be leaders of it and they may not necessarily be the managers they may be people who are in lower level positions but you can kind of work with certain uh, certain types of uh, personalities that can then be demonstrating productivity to the rest of the group does it like one one starts changing and others follow or does it does it all need to like you know, everyone needs to make the shift to be more productive otherwise you're going to get nowhere yeah, look, uh, um, I, I believe that the, the best way to create that cultural change within the team is to um, identify and adopt a set of team agreements around how you're going to work. So in, in smart teams, I talked about um, three productivity cultures, your, your email culture, your meeting culture and your collaboration culture. And then urgent is really an extension of that because you also have an urgency culture. So I, I talk about those four different cultures and I reckon that you need a set of team agreements where you sit down a, as a team and you identify maybe five or six um, agreements that you will hold each other to account on. So around urgency, I've got things like 
you know, don't cry wolf. Don't don't make it urgent if it's not urgent. Um, you know, be be more purposeful than that. Or, you know, do what you say you're going to do. So if you make a commitment, if I say that I'll send that to you by Thursday, either deliver on that or put your hand up and renegotiate, but don't just bury your head in the sand and hope they didn't notice. So they, they'd be examples of, of team agreements that we could adopt. And I, I really shy away from uh, creating a set of rules that the manager or the leadership team have to police because that's never going to be sustainable and it's not going it's not the right way to um, create a cultural shift so I prefer to, to think about these as agreements that we've all agreed to and then we police each other so a part of this cultural shift is is the idea that uh, the, the most junior person in the team could call out a poor behavior, even if you're the CEO, and you would be mature enough to go, fair call. Okay, we said we'd do that and I haven't done it. You're right. So it's, it's kind of opening up the space for that sort of, uh, I think, healthy, um, uh, robust conversation about how we mm. work. What about um, the end of the day? So everything now with people working from home even before covid like people would take their laptop home and they'd be doing emails at night and so forth but, but it's just the 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 evening tide the the sunset of our day is not uh, i've turned off the lights and i'm i'm walking out of the office um yeah. so how do, do you have anything in here um or even not in here but just general advice how people can kind of um, put a put a full stop on the end of the day and be able to have a meal with their with on their own with their family, uh, be able to relax and and have a good sleep so they can get up and then repurpose their day. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I often get asked about work life balance, and my view is that work life balance only comes when you get a number of other things in balance. So. Um, I think before work-life balance comes work-work balance. And what I mean by that is uh, the, the two main activities that you need to manage, whether you're the CEO or you're a, a manager or a worker, the two main activities in your week are meetings and tasks. doesn't matter what organization I'm dealing with, everyone's got a mixture of meetings and tasks. And at the more senior levels, one of the most common problems that I see from a personal productivity point of view is that people give way too much of their time away to meetings. So it's not unusual for me to be working with people that were spending 80 or 90% of their core working hours in meetings. And that means that their work work is out of balance because they have no time left over to get their priorities done or to process their emails or to sit and think. So all of that stuff tends to get done after hours. So it, it, you know, people will commonly say to me, I'm in meetings from nine till five and then I'm catching up on my real work from five till nine, which is kind of crazy, especially if you've got young families. And it's only gotten worse in COVID times because there's a real bleeding um, from, from work and personal in our day now. So I think what you need to do is to, um, the analogy I use with this is, uh, if you think about a kettle, uh, a kettle will have a, a mark in on the inside that says, do not fill above this level, because otherwise the water is going to go everywhere. 
I reckon that we should have a mark in our schedule that says do not fill above this level when it comes to meetings. So one of the exercises I get people to do is to just simply think if you if you if you think about the the, the amount of hours that you're willing to work in a week. So let's say it was I'm, I'm willing to work a 50 hour week. They're my core working hours. What would be the ideal percentage split? Would it be 50 50? Or would it be 60-40 or is it 70-30? But it's got to be better than 90-10. And, and because that's the reality for a lot of people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so one of the things um, that I know that when I'm going, I have to do a business trip, um, um, you know, maybe to a book, book fair or conference around the world, um, those last four or five days before I'm going away, I am super effective because I know I've got this deadline that needs to be hit. And it's not like I'm freaking out. I'm just getting through things faster. Yeah. Is there, sometimes I, I fake it, you know, sometimes I try and say, I've got to get a flight tomorrow. I've, or I've got to, do you, do do people do that? Do people kind of reframe it, I guess, so they can, they can be more productive um, because it kind of feels like, well, I've got time. We kind of abuse time or we don't have the respect of time. And so therefore, oh, I'll just kind of let it fatten it out a little and it'll get done. When it, yeah. is, is there something about that that people use or um, am I on yes. the right track or? When it comes to urgency again, I'm uh, so, you know, just to step back a little bit and give you a bit of context on this answer. Um, I've been thinking about urgency for years because I've, I've been working in corporates around productivity for 20 years now. So I've seen this happen in almost every organization where they, they end up working really reactively all the time. So I wanted to talk about urgency, but I didn't know how to do it because if I went into a senior leadership team and I said, you need to dial down the urgency in this organization, they would push back immediately and say, hold on, I don't want you saying that to our people because we need them to be driving stuff forward. We need them to you know, get traction and build momentum. So it was always a really hard issue to raise in an organization. But then uh, the, the thing that unlocked it for me was um, last year in May 2019, I went to spend a week in Harvard and I did a, um, a week-long intensive course with Professor Ron Heffitz, uh, who's a, a well-known leadership um, uh, author and thinker. And it completely blew my mind and opened my mind. And, and it, it gave me a way of talking about urgency and I guess the thing that he gave me was the idea that I could talk about urgency from the, the point of view of moderating urgency. It didn't need to just say, dial down the urgency. It also needed to talk about how do we dial it up when it's, when it's real and it's reasonable. And that was the thing that suddenly you know, sparked my, um, my thinking around the book. So when I'm talking about urgency, um, one of the strategies that I recommend is if you need to drive the urgency, so, so you do need to create urgency and it's a reasonable thing, then you need to mobilize people um, behind the urgency. And one of the ways of doing that is to set a deadline. So deadlines serve a, 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 a job, but they need to be used with purpose. And the problem that I'm seeing is everything has a deadline and some of those deadlines are real and some of them are false. 
And when everything is urgent, then nothing is urgent. So we need to be much more purposeful in how we use it. So when when you, I mean, you've been studying this for some time, and just to remind people, I'm talking to Dermot Crowley or Crowley, depending on whether you come from, if you're coming from, from Dublin, then it's going to be Crowley. If you're coming from Cork, it's Crowley. And that's, that's how you exactly say it. Right. If you're yeah. from Ireland there, that's I'm my not Irish accent. I don't know Ireland your accent is from. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't rightly know. It's a, yeah, so I, I just make it up as I go along. Um, so uh, our author today, um, the author of Urgent Strategies to Control Urgency, Reduce Stress and Increase Productivity. And he's got two previous books, Smart Work and Smart Teams. And so you've been studying productivity and working with companies for 20 years. But what about, you know, like the the, the, the kind of analogy where um, the emergency ward is is in a full and people are just keep coming in and the, and the doctors in the emergency ward and the nurses, they're all they're all freaking out because it's just overflowing and no one bothered to go up the road and realize that, oh, the traffic lights are out and nobody bothered to um, tell somebody to fix the traffic lights and that's why the emergency ward is. And in a similar kind of, if you use that metaphor, kids, schools, training in these things, um, they kind of get into the workforce and then all of a sudden they've got to find their way around. But um, strategizing around your studies um, and prioritizing what to plan for. My son is um, just finishing year 11, about to start year 12, and and um, I have ADHD and and I know that because he was diagnosed with ADHD and little did I know that I, and he, for the first 55 years of my life, I was living with ADHD, which gives a certain, um, when it comes to productivity, he is, you may as well throw that out the window. You yeah, just yeah. do what you want, you do what you want to do and you don't do what you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, but in schools, is it is it something that can be, it's obviously a habit, it's obviously a skill that you can develop. It's not something that, um, like oh well you know lucky them they got the productivity um in a gene um it's it's a learned skill and and are we missing out by not going earlier into this and helping uh helping ourselves to be be more effective yeah look i reckon that that's true um you know by the way i am not naturally organized i um i came to australia 26 years ago as a backpacker in my mid-20s and I was a complete mess. I had no idea about um, any format of organization. And it was very stressful. I didn't realize it at the time, but I actually hated being the way I was. But I was all over the place with money. I was all over the place with, um, you know, how I managed myself. But luckily, I started working for a time management company in Sydney. And, and this is back in the, in the 90s when, when it was all about paper diary systems. But I fell in love with the whole idea of getting organized and helping other people to get organized. And I taught myself to be organized. So it, it, it doesn't have to be a natural thing. So uh, some people do have that natural gene. And to be honest, some people are over the top with it. So, you know, I teach a set of skills and, and strategies that some people take to the extreme. And they're way more um, extreme about using the system than I would be. But I think it is a learned skill. And I think that the, when it comes to personal productivity and when it comes to working proactively, which at the, at the individual level, that's one of the keys to 
um, reducing the unnecessary urgency is to um, build a proactive management system, work, workflow management system. And I think that that is as relevant with a student in school as it is with a worker in the workplace. Uh, my, my son is um, in his first year of university. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm slowly chipping away um, at with him is getting him to try and organize his time because it, I don't know what it is. And, and gee, I, I'm going to sound like my father here, but I don't know what it is about this generation. I can't, I can't believe I've said that. Um, but, you know, even using the calendar, he doesn't see the point. You know, if, if, if we if I arrange that we're going to have dinner with himself and his girlfriend next Saturday night, I'll say to him, did you put that into your calendar? No. How are you going to remember? I'll remember. I'll be fine. Yeah, you know, it's just, oh, my God, it's just crazy. But I reckon that you've got to use a calendar to remember what you need to do at a specific time when you get busy. And this is the problem maybe for um, people like Finn. He's not that busy yet. But when he gets busy, uh, he's going to absolutely have to rely on a calendar. And likewise, um, I think that the mistake that a lot of people make is, you know, nearly everyone in the corporate workplace will be using the calendar for their meetings. But what they're not using is an effective, proactive system for managing their priorities. So most people just use their inbox as their to-do list, or they might write things down on a post-it note to remember them. Or if they're really organized, they might write a, write a list out. But the problem with all of those is you're not managing your time around that stuff. Even if you have a to-do list, you're not actually saying, okay, when am I going to do that? Which leads to the risk that you might have it written in a list, but if you don't do it at the right time, it's eventually going to become urgent. And then you're going to have to deal with it urgently. And that's some people's work style. Some people just leave everything until it becomes urgent enough and then they deal with it and they tell themselves the story that I do my best work under pressure. Give me a deadline and I'll smash it. I'm a deadline person. But I reckon that that has not only um, real problems for your own stress levels, when you're working in a team, that then causes reactivity for other people because you're the one leaving things to the last minute and then saying to them, I need this this afternoon. So um, I, I reckon that we owe it to the people that we work with to, um, to learn to work proactively so that we can all kind of dial down the urgency a bit. So, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, there's so many things you said there that triggers thoughts, particularly about kids. Um, so obviously, uh, the respect of time and our association with time becomes a more... Um, more of a of a commodity to us when we get a little older um kids of today are the same as when we were kids we, you've got forever you're you're young you've got the, the whole life to do those things so therefore um, um time is not not something that is appreciated i guess you do that when you're older so i so you're it's interesting as one of the you know leading teachers on productivity in in australia and and you struggle with your own kids. I think that's very reassuring. Um, <laughs> my wife would be, um, you know, very pleased to hear that because she's, uh, she, you know, she, she struggles with it. So if you can't do it, then you know, what chance do we have? 
That's um, exactly right. That's, yeah. that's one of the best things that I think has come out of this podcast. Um, <laughs> I reckon a lot of people are going to go, phew. Um, but what about your own parents or your own your family or your friends who that you went to school with um, back in Ireland? Are they shaking their head and going, Dermot, he's a productivity expert? He's the, like, that's just, like, are they, they go, that's impossible because I remember how disorganized he was. I remember how, how like, surely not um that must happen when um when you go home or when you when you talk to them yeah look i reckon they did i reckon when i wrote my first book um smart work which is probably five or six years ago now and and i sent it to a few of my friends i I reckon the 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 um smirks on their faces saying really dermot crowley has written this and fair enough, um, but uh, at the same time, I, I think they um, they really took the hat off and, and went, wow, good on you. Because one of the things that I, I personally felt about Ireland, um, when I came to Australia, as I say, it was in my mid-20s, I kind of felt like I came home. Uh, Australia was immediately a, a really good fit for me. And though I'm, I'm fiercely Irish and I go back to Ireland regularly to visit family, I know I'll never live there again, and I've been clear about that from day one. So um, I'd never live there again. And a part of the reason was I always felt um, like I could never blossom in Ireland. I think that if I had stayed in Ireland, to be honest, I'd still be sitting on the same bar stool every night talking the same crap with people. And that was not the life that I wanted. But here in Australia, it really did feel like I could do anything I wanted to do. And this is a kid that I, I never went to university. I um, I didn't do well at school. Uh, now I didn't have ADHD, but I didn't. I struggled with study. I just found study really hard, so I didn't do well at school, even though I was very intelligent. And I, I never went to uni, which is a big chip on my shoulder for for a number of years. I always felt that I kind of let my father down. Who was you know my father had done. Uh, ancient Greek and ancient Roman, you know, first degrees at Trinity College. And um, when I came to Australia, I built my my life here and my career here, and I didn't have all of that baggage, and I could just do what I wanted. So I don't, at, at one level, I don't think people were really surprised because they saw how much I blossomed when I came to Australia. Mm, interesting. I mean, I travelled around the world for, for three and a half years myself. Um, and uh, and worked in London and I found my initial career in recruitment um, uh, but I, I struggled in Australia as well and I I got 56% of my HSC and went to university where I mastered in space invaders and snooker found <laughs> in accounting and economics and dropped out and and so and so I never really had a um, I, I never really had a stigma around that I didn't in fact I probably have more of a badge of honor that I didn't do it at university degree yeah. Probably being a bit more entrepreneurial, um, that was just one of those things that uh, fired me up. But um, the I think the, the the subject today, which is um, which we're talking about, is productivity, which which kind of um, being effective um, without all the stresses and and that come that can come with that is a universal thing that all all people are are kind of doesn't matter what you do um you're having to deal with so what what is i mean are there any without we're not here to provide any systems and when you talked about that company that you worked for when you i i remember they did those 
if it's the same one, they do those kind of compendiums and different. Yeah. yeah. What was it called again? I worked for Priority Management. There was a number of different ones, but I worked for Priority Management. Uh, yeah, there was another one that was um, probably the big file facts, and there was the the Franklin Covey um, system. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all those ones. And so, is there something today, you know, apps today or other things today that you kind of recommend that people know about or use that it's going to help you kind of uh, the way that uh, tricks or things in your inbox that you use? is that people can go, yeah, well, that would really help. I never thought I knew about that. Yeah, well, yeah. So, look, I, I've got a very strong view about technology, and, and, and that's my niche. I, I really carved out a niche. When I started um, Adapt Productivity, um, I decided to focus on productivity through technology. So everything that I've done has always been focused on how you leverage technology to be more productive. Uh, but... There's a million and one apps out there for productivity. You've got, you know, on your iPhone or your iPad, you've got all sorts of to-do apps, and, and a lot of them are great, but I don't use them. And the reason for that is I, I in my, my uh, client base is corporate, and most corporates in Australia are going to be using Microsoft Outlook and Office-based programs. So I, I reckon that Microsoft probably has 90% of the corporate workplace. And then the other 10% is probably um, now Google and Gmail. So either way, whether you're using Outlook or you're using Gmail, my belief is they're the tools that are at your fingertips and they are the best tools for the job for one simple reason. Um, if, if you think about personal productivity, the, the three elements of personal productivity these days are um, your, your schedule, your calendar for managing your meetings and, and what I call your fixed time commitments, your task list where you manage your priorities and, and they combine for me, uh, one of the things that I always get people to do is to set up a view in their tool that brings both their meetings and their tasks together into the one view because then you're managing your time around everything you need to do. So both Outlook and, and Gmail have the ability in the calendar to show tasks on a day-by-day -day basis. So I could have four meetings today, but I've also got five priorities that I need to get done today. And I've got two meetings tomorrow, but I've got 10 priorities that I'm going to try and get done tomorrow. So I've got a scheduling system for both fixed and more flexible work. And then whether we like it or not, a lot of that work is driven by email. So your calendar is driven by meeting invitations that come into your inbox and, and usually you press accept and they automatically go into your calendar. So one of the, the really great tips that I give people around um, task management is if an email comes into your inbox and you need to do something with it, but you're not in the position to do it right now, you can turn that email into a task and schedule it into your system for the appropriate day. And you can do that in Outlook, you can do it in Gmail. And that stops you using your inbox as a, a, an over full, messy, out of control to-do list, because that's what most people do. They leave emails in their inbox and they mark them on red or they put flags on them to try and remember that they need to go back and deal with them. But you know yourself, the minute it goes below the screen, there's a risk that you're gonna forget about it or it's gonna become urgent and someone has to chase you up on it because you haven't responded to them. So that for me is probably the number one strategy to get more proactive with your work 
uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Quite quite technical and, and tactical, but that's what shifts people's behaviors, I reckon. We, I mean, we do that with my inbox, my EAZ and I. So we have, we dedicate, we put calendar entries to go through certain inboxes or as everything moves into various folders under two, I can handle those ones without under two minutes. Yeah. These ones are under 10 minutes. These ones are over 10 minutes. And then we, we block them into the calendar. Um, that then requires me to keep my word and do what I'm supposed to do at those times, which of course things need to move along, but things do get done. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know about that. You could actually just take that and move it into a calendar entry from a task perspective. Yeah. Um, right. Really I'll simple, a, really effective. Take, definitely take a look at that. That's helpful. So, so basically no apps um, and all those other, um, you know, the old, you know, a file of facts or whatever the ones that you were selling that there's no, those ones are all now defunct. Yeah, look, I reckon so. You know, people are still using a spiral notebook for the meeting notes. And, and again, I, I'm a fan of, of using electronic tools for that. So I use OneNote, um, which is a Microsoft tool. Lots of people use Evernote, but it just makes more sense to keep information electronically these days and be able to search for it when we need it rather than writing things down. The one thing I still do manually, though, on, on a notepad is I, I think on paper. So I will I will organize myself electronically, but I still tend to think on paper. So books get written. I don't I don't physically write a book on, in a notepad, but all of my ideas for a book will tend to be captured in a notepad. Mm -hmm. And I, I do, you know, big picture planning on paper, but then I translate that into some electronic form so that I can retain it better and, and find it again when I need it. So we're getting closer to the end of our time together. Is there anything that you thought, oh, I never talked about that or you never asked about that? Is there something that you wanted to kind of... I wouldn't mind looping back to a question that you did ask about, but I, I kind of answered it uh, in a, um, a way that brought us in a different direction. Um, you, you were asking about um, should people learn to say no or negotiate around these deadlines and urgent pressures that are put upon them? And I, I do think that it's worth um, having a quick talk about that because one of the... I'm hoping that the book Urgent does two things. I'm hoping that it's a rock that I'm throwing at a glass house, which is leadership in Australia, to say, hey, guys, wake up to this because you, you might not be aware, but the urgent reactive cultures that you're allowing to exist in your organization is having a massive impact on productivity. So that's, that's one hope for the book. But the second hope for the book is that um, managers and workers and, and leaders themselves realize that they are not victims of urgency. They don't have to be victims of urgency. They do have some agency and they do have some control over this in their workplace. And it doesn't matter whether they're working in a, in a big bank or, or in a law firm, they there are things they can do to manage the urgency. So one of the, the best strategies that I think that we can uh, employ to negotiate uh, around urgency is to um, understand the different elements of a piece of work that are negotiable. So time is just one element. And there's a very old saying that goes, um, 
you can have it cheap, you can have it fast, or you can have it good. Pick two. You can't have all three. And that's such a useful construct, I reckon. Um, now, in project management, they talk about the negotiable constraints in a project. So they talk about things like time and quality and scope that are, can all be adjusted to help you deliver the project uh, in, in a reasonable way. And what I've done in the book is I've taken those and I've turned them into what I call the urgency dials. So I, I like the idea that we can, we can dial urgency up or down. And that's often what happens for us. So we might have a situation where we think we've got a deadline of the end of October. And then a senior leader comes along and says, no, we actually need that by mid-October. So what they've done is they've dialed the urgency up and we've got less time to deliver. Now, for some people, that's just another pressure on top of a whole lot of other things that we need to get done. And they'll just work longer and longer hours to, to, to deliver. But the, the ultimate cost of that is burnout. So instead of that, what I try and get them to do is to um, uh, ask probing questions and understand are there other aspects that we can negotiate on. So one of those might be quality. So I might say to you, look, that's really, you know, that deadline is going to be hard to achieve, but I, I think I can do it. But the quality of the work isn't going to be as good. Will that be okay? Instead of going for 100%, if it was 80%, are you going to be happy enough with that? And, and as a stakeholder, you might go, yeah, that'll be fine. That's no problem. Or it might be the scope of the work. So I might say, look, I can deliver this, this, and this by that date. But the additional extra piece, that's going to have to wait till later. And again, you might go yes, or you might go no. But it's about opening up the space for this conversation and, and um, giving people something tangible that they can negotiate on rather than saying just saying, no, I can't deliver on that deadline. Like, or at least having that as the only option. Yeah, that's so, good. That's very good. I think people, they're going to appreciate that. And by the way, everyone, um, Dermot has his own company here in Sydney called Adapt Productivity. So if you're listening to this and you go, hey, we need him, or my CEO could really do with that guy, um, then uh, you should reach out. He's, you obviously got a website and you can get in touch. And um, I'm, I'm sure you're very busy, but um, the, this is... Um, it's obvious to me, hopefully, hopefully it is to others who are listening, that this is a this is a critical thing that we need to be thinking about and, and addressing and making sure that um, that for me it's all about being sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. I talk um, about playing double win-win. Yeah. And what that means, you've heard the expression win-win um, yeah. and uh, win-lose. You know, there's a winner and a loser, but win, you know, you win, I win, right? But you can't you can't play. Um, win-win you, you've got to play double win-win there's four has to be four winners yeah. utopia needs to win yeah. our customers need to win our suppliers need to win and our employees need to win yeah, yeah. and if all four are winning then you've got a sustainable model yeah i yeah. know companies where one of those or two of those areas are losing it's not a sustainable model and if you if you can't have your people get up every day with the same amount of energy mm. as they had and I remember when I first started Booktopia, seriously, it was just like, it was like putting $3 worth of fuel in my tank because I slept for four or five, six hours and got up exhausted, but then went again to the next day and, and then just put another $3 in. And you're always feeling like, 
just trying to get to the end of the day because I, will I make it to the service station to fill up or not? Uh, you're always feeling like you're running on empty and there's a huge difference when you actually spend that day feeling and you start the day with a full tank yeah. and you can start every day with a full tank. Um, it's, it's huge. Uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, like the kettle and, and you know, the exploding, but in a similar kind of metaphor, that's what, that's what we need. We need to be able to uh, start every day with, with enough fuel in there that you, by the end of the day, you still feel like you could have kept going if you had to, but you didn't. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that's going to give you that fuel is working on the things that you now have real impact. And um, I guess the challenge for a lot of people is they're very busy, but they're busy serving the business and they're busy serving their team but they're not getting enough time to serve their their role and their goals and objectives within that role. And, and that's what I encourage people to try and do is to just shift the mindset and, and be fiercely protective around your time that is spent on the things that have real impact. And every time you let some urgent issue derail your day, the opportunity cost is there's some more important priority that you're not getting to that either won't get done or will become urgent in a week's time and then you're just on that cycle of reactivity all over again so i i think that if we can we can be working on the things that have impact in a proactive way we come to work with a huge amount of energy because it's it's a pleasure rather than a painful experience it's a real disservice to actually have have um come up with the name a business you know that because basically it's a busyness. Yeah. And you're yeah. just being like, we should have called them productivenesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. <laughs> because, because we, you know, like, it's, it's like the enemy, you got to, that's the thing you got to avoid is, is the busyness of, of business. Uh, yeah. You actually need to be, um, make sure that you're, you're as productive and as effective and as, um, and as creating as much of a contribution as you can. Yeah. So it's um it's quite a disservice. I never thought about it before. But yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We're so, the busyness. Thank, thank you so much for and congratulations on, on your third book, the trilogy. I know um, you know, Tolkien had his trilogy. <laughs> Dermot Crowley's got um smart work, smart teams, and now urgent. Um so I don't know whether there's a box set or when the movie's coming out or when Peter Jackson is looking at doing some sort of spectacular thing with hobbits in New Zealand, but um, um, he, you, you've done it. You're on your, you're on your way to, uh, to, um, to creating a, a great series of, of more and more books. And thank you for your, um, for your contribution. Thank you for consolidating and distilling what you've, you know, what you've studied and, and, and obsessed about over so many years so you can, you can put into a small, a small package for us to consume and, and impact our lives. So, um, uh, congrats and and as I said earlier on Dermot Crowley's book is urgent and published by John Wiley and you can buy it on Booktopia or most hopefully most most bookshops are stocking it and um, we've got to we've got to make it a bestseller because the yep. information is gold congratulations thank you Tony and thank you for your support pleasure all the best thank you Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free. 
and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.